Greetings, programs, and welcome to the Awesome Friday Podcast. My name is Matthew, and with me is Simon, and we're going to talk about two movies, as we generally do. Um, But first, how are you today, Simon? Hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm uh, I'm okay. I have eaten far too much food in the last 24 hours, uh, because somebody, pointing at you, made delicious bread and uh, added it to a table with raclette, cheese, and meat and vegetables and all kinds of stuff and i think i had four platefuls of bread and meat and cheese followed I mean, by that's that's ridiculous i'm not sure there's any such thing as too much bread no, meat and cheese i i guess not but i've never <clears> been good at portion control if i'm eating something delicious and um boy howdy was it delicious and then we had brownies and then we had your muffins and I ate too many of my brownies, and then another dessert got pulled out, a surprise dessert, so I had that as well, and so I feel like I don't need to eat again. But I do love eating, and I love eating when the food is so good. I mean, so, we, live, uh, we live in capitalist, consumerist society, so there is right. no such thing as too much when it comes to these things. Ah, <sighs> yeah, it was pretty great. Oh, uh, yeah. Sorry, how are you doing? I'm good. My sleep schedule is generally kind of screwed at the moment so i had this whole grand plan of being productive this morning that fell apart when i slept in by two and three quarter hours uh Mm -hmm. so i need to fix that um it's become a real thing the downside of being your own boss is that if you're not if you're not great with time management it can it can Mm -hmm. quickly become kind of a runaway train and Mm -hmm. uh i'm not saying that's where i'm at but also my sleep schedule (laughs) is messed up Right. So, yeah. Are you go- like? Are you going to bed too late and waking up late? Is is yeah? You just shifted. Yeah, it just keeps shifting later, and like at some point, I'm just going to become nocturnal. <laughs> it's fine. I I always thought I I could do nocturnal before I had kids. I was very much the kind of person that would start writing music or something at 11 p.m. and go to to like two three in the morning and. That's when all my good stuff was. And now I've had kids, I, that isn't an option anymore. Like, if, I, yeah. if, if I'm awake <clears throat> past 10.30, it's a miracle. I mean, it's also just been a busy week for work, but not only day job work, but I'm sure, as you're aware, because you're in this uh, with me, but I co-founded a critic society this week. <laughs> um, so if you are listening to this and you are, you know, involved in movie making you should go and check out CascadiaCritics.com because we are a newly formed critic society with thoughts and opinions and awards and Mm -hmm. a dozen inaugural members. And that has been a strange, a strangely larger amount of work than I thought it would be uh, given Mm -hmm. how little time I have from my day job. So, but we are in the midst, we are in the midst of, announcing all the nominations for our inaugural Best Cascadian Film Award. And when we do, once that's out, we'll also have our top 10 of the year uh, uh, soon after. So lots of exciting things happening in, in the in the movie writing world as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Don't it's sound a, too excited, Simon. You're going to really... No, I, <laughs> I, I, I was reading something about the Cascadian films. Sorry, I, I'm trying to multitask. And I, it's made me think a lot about the the region in which you're like focusing on, is mm-hmm. is not usually something I would um, chase to see. Like again, this goes back to what we've talked about 
couple of times now is that we we both you're much better at this than I am, but we both want to actively see stuff outside of just the major releases uh, because there's so much stuff in there, um, especially Canadian stuff that I would not have seen that has really been outstanding the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. um, it's a it's a really interesting project. I'm really glad to be part of it, and I'm especially glad that I am not part any part of the organizational side of it. So good job, <laughs> good job. And uh, and keep keep up the fine work. Yeah, so uh, you can check that out. Um, anyone who's listening, check it out. It's CascadiaCritics.com. We're also on all of the socials. Uh, and it's, mm. it is just getting started. Like, the website is up, but it's technically not complete. Um, God. Uh, but we have, yeah, we have 12 members. We have, it's lots of exciting plans. Um, mm. And we are going to do just our top 10 films of the year this year, but we do have plans for a full slate of critic awards for next year. Um, focusing on the Cascadia filmmaking in the Cascadia region. So that means basically the shorthand for that at the moment is BC and Washington. And whenever we expand Mm. the membership, we might expand that scope a little bit, but Mm. centering on the Pacific Northwest of North America. So it's a good focus to have. It's nice. It's not just Canadian. It's not just American. It's not just indie. It feels like it's something that is distinct from all the other sort of regional groupings of these things. And, uh, and it's interesting because so, so many films in that area share a visual uh, uniformity because it is so beautiful outside here, but it looks, it looks the same. The, the coast from like Oregon up to uh, the, the, the top before you get to Alaska pretty much looks the same but just different versions of absolutely stunning and it films so well because the light is so good and uh, so many of these films are just gorgeous 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 which is really nice yeah and if you've ever watched i mean we're focusing on film predominantly but our name is technically the cascadia film and television critics association and so we will probably have we'll have tv awards as well so if you're a tv watcher and you watch any network stuff you've basically seen Vancouver as well because we're yes. such a big hub for like if you watched Supernatural or any Hallmark movie or uh, Stargate or got like mm-hmm. there's so many obviously showing my like genre tastes but there's so many things that are filmed here Follow the House of Usher this year was filmed here um, lot lots of so Netflix was, stuff um, films here like it's all Midnight Mass seen... as well. Yeah, what I'm saying is you've seen you've seen Vancouver, you've seen the Pacific Northwest if you if you've watched TV or film. So because so much stuff is just made here, so yeah, we're trying to focus and and highlight some of that, and hopefully some of the lesser known stuff. I'm really I'm really proud of our best Cascadian film nominees because there's stuff that mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is I think all all of them are things you probably haven't seen with with maybe one exception and. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really happy that we're able to highlight stuff that is otherwise great. Did you ever watch Continuum with uh, Rachel Nichols? That was the nice thing yeah. about that. It's a sci-fi time travelly featurey show, but it is actually not just filmed in Vancouver, but actually set in Vancouver as well. And yeah. uh, it's nice because most things are filmed here. Pretend it's San Francisco or somewhere, or generic American town, but this was openly like. Uh, uh, Vancouver, yeah, and that's always nice. 
Yeah, that was a fun show too. I never finished it, it but I did watch the first like two. Yeah, it was. I think good. it went for four years, and I think I watched two, two of them. Mm. It was very good. Yeah, uh, it's on my list to rewatch at some point, but I'm two two seasons deep in my rewatch of Cheers right now, and that's taking up all my time. <laughs> Do you just want to go where somewhere where everybody knows your name? Is that what you're yearning for? You know what's amazing about that show, actually, is that it's I hadn't watched it since I was young, because obviously it ended in 93 or whatever, and I don't I don't think I had watched an episode since then. Like, I remember very distinctly, I remember watching the finale when it happened, mm-hmm. but I definitely watched so much of that show when I was young that the first time I, as soon as the theme song came on, like, I remembered all the words, like, all of them. <laughs> um, and it's just so, it's so, like familiar and comforting i've been really 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 enjoying it and so much of it is like so much of it is just like dad jokes that make me laugh mm. like there's a great exa- a great example in the episode i just watched so the initial setup of the show is that diane chambers comes in and she's dumped and she gets a job at the bar and there's an episode in season two where the guy who dumped her comes back and he's like i'm the guy who dumped diane and i was at dinner with a friend last night and this is where i left her and he told me that uh, that she works here. Is that true? And Coach, the character is talking to, says, I don't know. I wasn't at the dinner. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's it's like top tier level dad jokes. And uh, they're so well delivered that I enjoy mm-hmm. every second of it. There's a good cast. How did they end that show then? Give me a, a synopsis. How did they like close the bar? How do you end a show like Cheers? Does everyone walk out one by one and the last person looks behind them and then closes the door and locks it? So I'm, it I haven't looked. I don't remember exactly the whole, the the end, the last two. I think it's two part end. And I don't remember at all of it. And I haven't looked it up because I want to like appreciate it when I get to it. But the one thing I do very distinctly remember is the last shot of the show is Sam walking over to the bar is empty and he walks over and he like straightens the painting that they put up after coach died. Cause it was actually Nicholas Colasanto's painting in his dressing room and they put it on the set to like honor him after he died. So he straightens the painting and someone comes to the door and like knocks on it and he looks over and he says, sorry, we're closed. And then it sort of fades to black. That was the last oh, shot. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. But it's a great show. Like it's uh I'm I have a I have a good slash bad feeling that when I'm done watching Cheers, I'm just gonna move on to Frasier. But <laughs> but I'm not yeah. I'm not at a point in Cheers where I've gotten to Frasier appearing yet, so because he doesn't show up until like season three or four. Yeah. I enjoyed watching Fraser very much when I was younger. And I this I'm not sure how I feel about like elitist New York humor. Oh, but the but the brilliance of that show is that it is constantly making fun of Niles and Frazier. Mm. Like it's never like you're never laughing with them. You're always yeah. laughing at them. Like mm. the heroes of that show are Daphne and the dad and Roz, mm. who are always like yeah, they're always laughing at them, not with them. It's 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 mm-hmm. it's a it's a very it's a very unsubtle satire of these types of people, mm. um, as it was in Cheers. Like he he's he's a regular. He's a regular on that show from like season three to the end, and I'm pretty sure he was 
being satirized the entire time. My bigger Where problem with it, honestly, is that Kelsey Grammer is a garbage human now, and I don't really know that I want to. Oh, oh, is he? Yeah, what? and I don't necessarily want to support him anymore than I already do, but uh, I'm pretty sure he's already been paid for Frasier, so. Um, <clears throat> yes, that's true. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm just going to guess he's like a massive Republican. That seems to be the, the shock revelation for uh, He literally said he would support Trump. Like last week. Oh, <laughs> like, good. Lovely. Yeah. Makes me wonder why there's a uh, there's a revival of the show, and uh, it makes me. I would be. I would love to be a fly on the wall with whatever to hear whatever David Hyde Pierce said when he refused when he said he didn't want to be on the show. Oh, he refused, eh? Well, I, I don't. I don't know if he refused, but that might be just me. Just you know. <laughs> adding some assumption to the way I'm phrasing it, but he's not on, he's yeah. not on the show. Right. So, and I think, I think, and Jane, I don't think Jane leaves was on the show, but um, right. Harry Gilpin was, and a few other people from the original run. So, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, N- Niles is not in the reboot in the, in the, in the revival. Interesting. So anyway, oh. it's very much like film. Um, yes what should we talk about so we should move on and talk about some films okay uh so we're going to talk about two films uh today uh which i know is a shock uh and we're going to start off with one we're finally catching up with uh which had its big debut back at the height of festival season and is finally available on demand so we were finally able to catch up with it so um simon why don't you (laughs) Give us the basic, basic lowdown of the Uh, three-hour and 40-minute epic film that is Killers of the Flower Moon. I was hoping you were going to give me the second one. Um, I know you were. This is set... (laughs) Oh, God, I didn't even research the year it's set in. It's in the Um, 20s. doesn't really matter. It's in the 20s. It's post-World War I. It's in the Osage County, um, where the Osage... People are uh, are rich because they have oil, and uh, it's at a time where um, that that money was flowing freely uh, in from the uh, Americans as they moved west, and so it made the Osage people very very rich. Something I didn't know about; I had no idea uh, at all that um, I only know white people uh, absolutely running natives into the ground. Uh, I had no idea that the native Osage people were so well established at that time. Um, and that was a bit of an eye opener for me. And it, it sets a, as a, this, this is a movie that wants to teach you things about that. And it sure does because uh, it's basically uh, a film about uh, white oppression and um, the the, uh, the the colonizers, the settlers moving into this land and basically just taking, stealing, killing. Um, and within all this, you have um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Ernest, who is returning from being injured in the, the war. And he's come back to live with his uncle and his brother um, to uh, to try and sort of fix his life and get back to some kind of normalcy after his the horrific things he's seen in the war. 
Um, and so uh, the environment at that time is lots of white business people trying to um, exploit the the very, very rich Osage people. And um, basically, without giving too much away, his, his uncle, William Hale, played by Robert De Niro, is a friend of the Osage people on the outside, but it soon becomes very, very apparent that he is not as squeaky clean as he would uh, he would like to other people to think he is. And he is very much a pushing force in uh, making Ernest uh, weasel himself into a family so he gets that, that Osage's family's money um, when the the uh when they die one by one out of which they do and there's there's a an uh something else i didn't know about um if you didn't have a certain categorization you had to have a guardian with you uh again more ridiculous rules placed on the osage people by the the white colonizers i would love to, have to know how it got to that point because there's a jump from the osage people have lots of money and are very well dressed to now they they have to have guardians for uh, their money and permission for how to spend their money, and that I don't know the history of that, so I didn't know how it got from one to the other. But um, basically, so, it's I I don't want to inter- interrupt your spiel too badly, but uh, they it's like that from the start in the film. Like that's why there's an early film with yes. Molly who. Um, she's going to ask her like financial guardian for money to pay for something. It's like one of the first scenes of the film. And it the is, answer it to it, the answer to it is that like the natives had money and the white, the white people basically said that like declared a number of them like incompetent to handle their own money. It's terrible. Right. But so that's exactly what I'm talking about because the opening montage paints the Osage as being uh, rich, being successful and, and what power did the white people have to then say you're incompetent so you can't control your own money? I would I would like to know that that mm. transfer to the point where they're asking permission for money because they clearly have it. Um, and it's basically uh, it's Scorsese uh, with with um, a sharp edge trying to educate uh, people on the terrible things that these white settlers did to the Osage people and. It's just a litany, a series of terrible, terrible things. Uh, and off, uh, DiCaprio is our focus. He, it's interesting because he's not, he's not really um, sympathetic at all. He he spends most of this movie being a bit of a, being a, a coward who won't, even when he loves someone, he's still t- absolutely manipulated into doing terrible things. And uh, it's just a series of terrible people doing terrible things with terrible outcomes for three and a half hours. And uh, I mean, centrally, you've got um, a very Scorsese-style story of a young guy who wants to make a name for himself, who falls in love with someone but has his toes too deep in the crime family and is manipulated and that relationship becomes soured. And then there are consequences with, to the law in the latter sort of hour and a half is the consequences of that lifetime of bad decisions. And so this is this is a, a story that Scorsese has told before. Um, but the uh, the uh, I don't know. I've I felt like I've seen this film before. But the the cinematography 
is that the, the visuals are very, very pretty. Um, and um, I think there's some very interesting performance work, particularly from Lily Gladstone, who's a standout here. And um, Scorsese does not hold back from making it very, very clear. He's not asking for a both sides argument here. It's a, it's a very clear uh, education session on the true terrible things that these people did and and probably still do <laughs> you know it's not this is not history this is america so i'm sure this happens daily in different ways I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, we know it we know it does you just have to watch the news to find out that it does right right although i don't so, necessarily hold it against anyone who's not watching the news that shit is depressing yeah um <clears throat> yeah so um yeah i for me, I feel that this um, is kind of just fine. It doesn't have the bite in the script that many of Scorsese's other works do, telling a similar kind of story. Um, there's some interesting sweeping long takes, but I found the the framing of the camera work quite sort of straightforward. So this film didn't blow me away as many of other Scorsese's films did. And you made an interesting point this week that I've been thinking about, that it is too long. But when it comes to, well, what would you cut out? Uh, it's a very difficult thing to answer because he he does make a point with everything he includes. I think there's an argument to, should the focus have been a bit more narrow, maybe focusing on not such a, a wide gamut of things or maybe moving through it a bit faster, but I wouldn't be the person who could tell you how and what but the and i thought the performances were fine um lily gladstone is so much better than everyone she is coming <laughs> from a place of such extreme truth in in her eyes in her reactions she is so incredible in this film it's worth watching for her performance alone and i've never seen her in anything and now i want to see her in more things because she's fantastic and DiCaprio is DiCaprio and De Niro is De Niro, and they both they know what they're doing, but they they are capital A acting. They make DiCaprio in particular makes some particular uh, uh, physical choices that I kind of wish he hadn't. But I don't know. It's fine. I like Scorsese a lot as a director. There's a an interesting coda at the end, and the way he sort of wraps up the story is kind of interesting, and also kind of feels like Scorsese might be trying to get in everything he's trying to say while he still can. If you know what I mean, um, so I, th I think that so, would be that would yeah. be where. So Scorsese is, um, how old is he now that I've started the sentence? I should oh, know the answer. He's, he's eighty-one, yeah. and it does. He's made a lot of films that are interrogation of America's history with a lens of. American sin and this is definitely one of those as well mm. and I do it does maybe feel like if this if this turned out to be his last picture I think he's really trying to get in like everything he can possibly say about the subject you know what I mean like mm. about yeah totally yeah. about how this the experience of the Osage nation in this film is really the foundational American experience of being mm. a minority being oppressed by a white uh, well, actually, to be fair, perfectly fair, uh, a large indigenous group uh, being oppressed by a white minority. 
uh, and about the insidiousness of American capitalism and how directly tied to the exploitation of others it is. And I, I very much appreciate all of that about it. I, it's one of those ones to be hard to talk about because it's going to sound like I'm quite down on it, but I did like the movie. Like very generally, I liked the movie. Um, I think I'm just going to echo right away. Lily Gladstone is amazing. And I hope, I hope that she gets all of the awards love in the new year. I think it'd be well-deserved. There's one scene in particular where she's informed of a death and lets out a wail that kind of shook me to my core. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Cause it was so, I think you said extreme truth is, is I think mm. the most apt way to have said it. Um, I think Scorsese and De Niro are both, again, Scorsese and De Niro, they're both good. Um, I think, uh, sorry, yeah, De Niro and DiCaprio are both good. I think that they are a little uneven in that they are, there's some scenes in which they are incredible and there are some scenes in which they are just good. So when I'm saying that they like, they waver, like, uh, or that they're inconsistent, mm-hmm. it's not that they ever venture into bad. It's just that like, there's some scenes where they're incredible and there's some scenes mm-hmm. when they are existing on in, in film at their base level, which is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but man, this movie's so long. It's three and a half hours long. And I, and I, again, I do not know what you would cut out of this film. Because anything you cut out would lessen the impact of the ending. Mm. Um, and it is hard to watch a film this long that is like basically saying these are the bad, like these are the bad guys. These are the yeah. bad guys, right? Um, and to not hold back. My wife made an interesting point. She actually, she's not historically a huge Scorsese fan. And this is no exception. She wasn't really, didn't really jive with it at all. But she felt that if anything, DiCaprio's character was made too sympathetic. uh, Because apparently in real life, he was much worse. Um, I felt that uh, within the context of the film, it, it really focuses on him being a coward of being a character who's, conflicted but ultimately unable to defy any kind of authority figure in his life which makes him a bit tragic and thus maybe she's maybe a little too sympathetic but even at the end when he's given a chance to redeem himself he doesn't take it because he's a coward and i thought that the scenes around that are were kind of incredible um and i thought honestly weirdly like if anyone like Robert De Niro is a great actor. One of the great actors of one of the great film actors period. And I cannot Mm -hmm. think of a a scene in which I think there's only one, maybe one scene I can remember. I watched this movie like four days ago. There's maybe one scene I can remember where I thought he was truly, truly excellent. Um, Which again is not to say that he was bad at any of them. Just that like, he doesn't have any standout moments and maybe that's, a good thing. Maybe that's maybe that's what you want. Maybe you just want, you know, three great scenes and no bad ones, but this movie's just a lot. It's just a lot. And I feel like uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, knowing we're going to be talking about it. So Scorsese has sort of two, two modes as a filmmaker. I mean, it's not quite that black and white, that binary but he sort of has two modes as a filmmaker one is that he makes films like say 
Goodfellas or The Departed or The Wolf of Wall Street that have this like propulsive narrative that keeps you hooked and like shows you things that are great but are actually ultimately terrible. Mm-hmm. Like I rewatched Goodfellas this year, like not that long ago. And I know there's a lot of dude bros who like love that film and I love that film, but I know there's a lot of dude bros who like love that film and really empathize with Henry Hill, but coming away from that film as a full fledged adult, I can't help but think how did they, how can anyone watch that show and think that Henry Hill's life is anything other than tragic, tragic and sad and paranoid and, and terrible, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel yeah. like, so he has he has that kind of film. And I think The Wolf of Wall Street is one of the more recent super divisive ones where like I personally think that anyone thinks anyone who thinks that that film venerates Jordan Belfort just didn't watch the last hour. You know, that's a 3-hour movie and the last hour is effectively indicting you for enjoying the first 2 hours basically. Uh, and the, but then he also makes films like Kundun and Silence and uh where they're super slow. They're very meditative and they're very, um, they're basically interrogating those two in particular are interrogating faith. And I feel like this film this is a very long roundabout way to say this, but I feel like this film is the, the former kind of film, but made with the tone and intent of the latter kind. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't quite jive for me. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, yeah, I I I completely agree with what you're saying. It doesn't have the bite of your know, Goodfellas or Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, it's not even the, the bite. It's just a like it feels well, like a film. For me, it feels it, like yeah, a film that it, needs a, a bit something a bit more propulsive going on. It's a little maybe too slow yeah. for the material. And I think yeah, that absolutely. like I think that um, I think personally, I know a lot of people don't agree, but I think that Silence is a masterpiece. Um, Silence is an incredible film. It's a huge downer. Um, it's a th- it's a three hour downer. It's not an easy watch, but it is a masterwork. I think it should go down as one of Scorsese's best pictures. Um, but it is a long, slow interrogation of the nature of faith and the nature of man and faith about religion. And the last the last scene of that movie is utterly devastating and just wouldn't be without the three hours that comes before it. Mm. This film feels like it's shooting for that. And I, I will say that the ending is very affecting, but it's not... I don't think it's as... I didn't find it to be as devastating as I think it was intended to be. Yeah, no, totally. totally. So, I, I wonder if it would have been better suited as a three-episode limited series. As there are three definite parts to this film. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that argument before, and I don't, I don't know the answer. I, I don't, I don't really think so, though. I think that, like, I think that at least the intent was that viewing it as this all at once, it's a complete story. Um, but like, this movie's an Apple TV original. It's going to be an Apple TV Plus at some point, and. Mm-hmm whilst I will say that I enjoyed I think so I watched this at home I think maybe if I'd seen it in a cinema I would like it more which is also true of the Irishman I like the Irishman more than most people I know and I, the key difference seems to have been that I watched it in a cinema um, mm. and 
I wonder if that would have been the case with this one as well. Mm. Um, where where I'm a little more, for lack of a better way to say it, where I was a little more captive to the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to watch a single thing this long at home without getting at least a little distracted or a little taken out of it. I think if I had been, and this is just me admitting that I was at home. So like I have cats and phones go off and it's easy to stop and go to the bathroom. That's all great. But I feel like a film like this kind of needs you to be captive to it, to be like immersed, forcibly immersed into it. And I think that that might have heightened my opinion of it had it been the case. Because it's again, certainly did with the Irishman. Like the Irishman is not a perfect film. Definitely has problems. But sitting down in a dark room and being like immersed into it made it a much better experience than everyone I know who watched it at home. So the the Irishman that, has a much stronger script as well, and I think that's the key thing that would drive my interest for three and a half hours is a is a dynamic script that pushes things forward that has a bit more interesting interplay. And I just compared to his other stuff that he didn't write many of the other films I'm comparing to, but he has directed better scripts that have far more propulsion. And I, I think this really needed a dose of that to get through it. Uh, I mean, he has written a lot of the films he's directed, though. Like, a lot, and a lot of the ones we consider to be classics. He's at least co-writing credit on. Um, so, I don't know. I just feel like... I feel like I wanted to love this movie so much so that it's so that the fact that I just like it is kind of a letdown. You know, it's 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 not fair. Um and it's certainly um making this sound a lot more down than I actually am. But the 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 core piece here to take away is that I liked this movie, I just didn't love it. Um oh. And if I was going to do a Scorsese ranking, it would probably be near the bottom. But that would be with the caveat that I've never, I I looked it up, I've never given a Scorsese film less than three out of five. So Mm -hmm. do with all that information, whatever you're going to do with it. But uh, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a perfectly fine movie. And I think. I think it's definitely worth watching. I think at some point someone's going to publish a, a think piece that's like, here's how you watch this movie in four parts and you can do that. It'll be fine. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I hope that uh, I hope that people watch it. I, I hate how down I sound about it because I do think it's a good, well-constructed, very well acted, especially by Lily Gladstone movie. And I think, um, I think it's good. I think, and I think it's an important story about American history that not a lot of people know about. Similar to how we all found out about the Tulsa race massacre when Watchmen happened, right? Like, which mm-hmm. is directly referenced in this movie. Um, I think it's an, an important film, and I, I, I recommend everyone watch it for themselves. Um, yes, yeah, my yeah. dumbass at the beginning. I wondered if I'd missed something that this was an alternate history because of how. Um, how wealthy the Osage were at the beginning. I had no idea. I had no idea how established they were because you just get, you just get fed the Cowboys and Indians version of, uh, of native peoples of America. And, and to see What's them. 
It's an interesting one too, just because like the U.S. government forced the Osage people to move, right? Like they were in one, wherever their traditional lands are, they were forced to move, I think twice. And then they landed in Oklahoma on this res uh, reservation. And then it just turned out they had all the oil under the reservation and they became rich. And the government basically went, well, shit. <laughs> you know, like it's, uh, I do feel like maybe based on the way you're speaking about it, like, and I don't, I'm not claiming to have like deep historical knowledge, but I feel like there is some context that maybe could have been provided in a little more, in a little more depth to that aspect yeah. of it. I think, I think if anything, like there's a scene right near the beginning, that's pretty emblematic, at least of the first half. And there's, there's a Osage person standing and a, a woman standing beside him and then a younger Osage man in a car and there's a white man Whoa. begging them, you know, Whoa. please help me out. My bait, my wife is, my wife is sick. My baby's going to die of starvation. Like you got to help me out. You have the money. I don't. And Whoa. after like, it goes on for a solid minute Whoa. before it turns out, he's actually just trying to sell them a car. <laughs> yeah. And when they agree to buy the car, he's like, Oh, thank you. And you know, if you get a flat tire, just come back and buy another one. And it's, it's such an interesting, a lot of this movie is fairly on the nose like that. Like there's another early scene you've probably seen referenced in other reviews where um, Leonardo DiCaprio is reading a book and he literally says, can you spot the wolves in this picture? <laughs> Just as he leaves to go literally like rob some Osage people, like yeah. to mug them in the street. And I, f I feel like that is a thing. I think a lesser filmmaker, this would be a, this would be a straight up bad movie because it's so on the nose. Mm. That's a difficult thing to pull off, and uh, I think he generally, I think he generally does. But I think if this was almost any other filmmaker, it would just be too much. Uh, so he does feel he does feel angry in this film. This feels like an, uh, a director who is pissed and that is a very clear at the beginning. I did laugh at that line because it was it doesn't leave any ambiguity about what he's saying about what's coming up in this film. And uh, also the coda at the end without expanding on it uh, is a, is a very personal Scorsese connection to the story being told. So that's why yeah. it does it does feel a bit like what if this is my last movie? It felt like a real like punctuation mark in so many ways. And I, I mean, hope it isn't because I do like watching his films. I wonder almost if like, just in, in our talking, I've started to wonder if like, in some ways it almost feels that the movie is so straightforward and so sort of directly on point that maybe it's almost like parts of some of the choices in this film are basically saying like, well, you fuckers didn't actually watch some of my previous films. <laughs> like, you didn't actually watch The Irishman. You didn't actually watch The Wolf of Wall Street. You didn't actually watch uh, Goodfellas. Like, you didn't actually watch and, and take in what I was trying to tell you. So I'm just going to be mm. a little more straightforward. Yes. Um, that was I, wonder, I wonder if that is the case. Because that's certainly how it feels. Uh, in in mm -hmm. speaking about it today, yes, no, I, I think that's a very, I I totally agree with that. How many yeah. stars are you giving Killers of the Flower Moon then? Oh, three. I mean, it's still a good. It's mm. still a good movie. It's mm. not going to work for everyone. Um, just because it is so long, like again, it is difficult. It's 
it's difficult to find three and a half hours to watch something at home at mm-hmm. the best of times. Yeah. And it's difficult to remain with rapt attention. Like this film sort of requires for three mm. and a half hours at home. Mm. Um, but it's a good film. Like it's not going to make my top 10 of the year, unfortunately. Um, mm. But it's a good film and it's an important film with a, an important message about the insidious nature of American capitalism and the way we write, we write history and, and the way, mm-hmm. uh, just the way that, that, you know, America works generally speaking. And, uh, mm-hmm. again, I hope I, I have mixed feelings about the idea that Scorsese even made this picture. Like I have seen it said that perhaps this should have been told by an indigenous filmmaker. And I don't, I have a hard time with this because I don't disagree with that. But I also think Scorsese having made it means that more of the eyeballs that need to see this film mm. will see it. Yeah. Uh, no, I, 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 so I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think telling the story and focusing on the white guy is a choice that at first blush might be problematic. But when you realize that, as with many of his other films, he's telling a story about the villain in the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make sense. Uh, but yeah, it's a good film. It's a good film, and you should definitely watch it. Three stars out of five. <laughs> you? Yeah, I'm three. So I don't like it as much as you, but I'm still going to give it three stars. So I think there's a, there's a range in, in three stars, particularly for... Um, I would say this whole movie is worth watching for Lily Gladstone's performance. If you want to see some actual, real, like authentic truth in a character. And I'm sure she's, she's from that culture. She, she is well aware of the trauma that she carries with her. And I think she dips into that, but not in a way that feels um, performative, if that's the right word. She, mm-hmm. She's just absolutely her eyes man just she's just absolutely authentic in the whole thing and and you know, that scream as well and she she is so she's such a central part of the story I, in a way that leo didn't really work for me she she works as much the other way so three stars mainly for her really mm-hmm. that's fair i mean i think the way the way i would describe DiCaprio's performance is that again, like I think he's great in almost every individual scene, but that those scenes strung together don't necessarily form a cohesive character mm-hmm. in a way that I think was maybe intended. Um, mm-hmm. And it's difficult because his character is one of such such divided loyalty and duality. Mm-hmm. He's trying to be one thing, but he's clearly another. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, he's just one thing. He's a coward but he's trying to be a loving husband and also the right-hand man of a crime boss who's trying to exploit his wife. And it's, it's a, it's a difficult, a difficult line to, to walk. And I'm not sure he's entirely successful in it, but also he's in, I think there's a scene towards the end of this film, which is just him and Lily Gladstone sitting across from one another in a room. Mm, And it's, it's one of the best acted scenes of the year. (laughs) So, um, it's just again, it's just uneven, right? It's uh, mm-hmm. it's difficult. Yeah, yeah. So, 
But anyway, so that's three stars each for Killers of the Flower Moon. It is available to rent now. Um, As always, if you go to our homepage for this episode, you will find Just Watch Power streaming links. And if you click those uh, to find a way to stream it, then uh, that helps us keep the lights on. So please do that. But we're going to move on now to another film, uh, which is about as far away from Killers of the Flower Moon as you can get. Um, And that is (laughs) Toho's new... Godzilla minus one, which is the latest entry in the Godzilla ongoing Godzilla franchise. Uh, It is the 33rd, I think 33rd, 33rd or 34th film in the ongoing um, Godzilla Japanese version of the Godzilla franchise. And like the 40th or something overall, thanks to the American ones now. Um, uh, and I almost don't want to talk about it because the short version of this review is going to be that it is fucking great. <laughs> um, go and see this movie on the largest screen you can find. Uh, it follows the story of a young kamikaze pilot who in the opening scene of the movie, he lands at a repair base. His name is Koichi. Koichi Shikishima, and he lands to have, claiming his plane is defective. That is, uh, and he lands and has the mechanics look it over, and they take him aside and they're like, "There is nothing wrong with your plane, dude." And he that same night, Godzilla attacks the island that he's on, Odo Island, and kills everyone except for him and one mechanic. Uh, in forty six, he makes his way back to now post-war, post-bombing Tokyo, ruined by survivor's guilt. Um, But he nevertheless manages to meet a homeless sort of street thief who has a baby that she's been basically given, and they form a small family unit. And then uh, he gets a job clearing mines on a small wooden boat, and then the nuclear tests at uh, Operation Crossroads, mutate Godzilla from a big dinosaur-looking thing into the huge monster we now recognize as Godzilla. And Godzilla starts attacking Japan. And he is in the thick of it. And this is a... (laughs) I don't... Almost don't want to say anything about this film because it is so good, but this is a film that is about survivor's guilt. It is about finding family. It is about whether you can go home again. It is about how we deal with the forces of nature in our lives, things we can't control and what we can. Um, it is, I, with the caveat that it is a different kind of performance, I think it is exceedingly well-performed by basically everyone involved. And despite the fact that I think at the end, there's a couple of moments that if you're paying attention to the film, you'll be like, yeah, of course. Like this, I saw this coming from a mile away, but they are all so well-executed that it doesn't matter. Um, I think that the the choice to make this a effectively it's effectively a remake of the 1954 Godzilla film, but it's set in 1945 through 48, and it's probably the most successful Godzilla film in terms of its sort of narrative purpose since the original, uh, which is saying a lot because it's 30 plus movies in. Um, and I, I loved it. I loved every second of it. And that's not even getting to the point where the total budget for the film was something like $15 million and it looks 
I mean, there's some caveats to this, but it looks basically comparable to anything made in the West today. Um, I don't know, man. This is a, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. I almost don't want to talk about, uh, like, because I don't want to spoil any any particular part of it. Um, but it is a great movie, and I don't know. I I I believe based on the fact that we text every day, that you agree with me, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here waiting for you to draw breath because I've got I just want to talk about this movie like for an hour. I want to talk about every part of this movie. What just an incredible film. And uh, I find it really we we come from very different backgrounds when it comes to Godzilla. And my only exposure to Godzilla um, really before the last couple of years was um the animated Godzilla and Godzuki, the Toho show from the uh, 80s, Godzilla, mm-hmm. um, which I watched a lot uh, with Terrible Godzuki, who, and Godzuki was the scrappy-doo of the Godzilla universe, uh, similarly annoying. And then I watched, um, I was aware of Godzilla as monster movies, and so whenever I saw monster movie i i knew it was referencing it but i'd never seen the originals and then i saw um the matthew broderick uh what year was that the 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 american 90, Godzilla. 98 97 98 something like that and that's, and that's not a good film and then um i've not really enjoyed the modern american ones the the monsterverse ones i know you like them quite a lot i don't like them i've not i don't find the human drama well written well acted i don't find the monsters uh, interestingly uh, interesting enough to carry a film so i'm kind of i'm not the godzilla fan you are and so what's really fascinating to me starting with watching the original with my son about a month ago is realizing what these movies were really about and that first movie made 11 years after the end of the second world war with still real rebuilding hiroshima and nagasaki and all the people dealing with that and watching this film and be like, oh my God, this film is about trauma. Godzilla's about the uh, trauma. It's the metaphor of the horrors of nuclear warfare. And uh, and then this film is like, it takes the original and just, I was not expecting a giant monster movie to be a deeply emotional and intelligent exploration of national PTSD after the end of the war, national guilt and the the will to live and the need to die for honor and what happens when you don't do that. And then looking after each other and what it means to be a family. What is a family? Mm-hmm. Like at what point do you become a family when that's not your family to begin with? And then, uh, and it just builds and builds and builds. And then it, uh, at the sort of to underline the points, not, not aside from it, but to underline all these points, you've got the, the Godzilla attacks that really amplify everything all the story beats that have been written into the characters are amplified by the monster attack. It's so intelligently done. The fact this was written, directed, and VFX by one guy is mind-blowing to me because it is so well-written, it's so well-directed, and the VFX, I would argue, look better than any American thing I've seen, any big American budget thing. And this is a big franchise thing. Like, Godzilla is one of the big Japanese international franchises. It is comparable to other American franchises in terms of status. And the fact that Toho took this one guy who's done a bunch of films before, but said, okay, you you do everything here for 15 million. And for him to make a film that is this affecting and this clever 
like mm -hmm. with sound my son came out of this talking about the sound of this movie about how silence is used as a as a punctuation mark i couldn't be happier because i'm just like yeah you're absolutely right this film knows when to be loud but it also knows when to be quiet and it knows when to be silent and it is incredible the flow of this movie is it's very very slow in places it takes its time with the characters beautifully acted by uh kamiki renosuke and Minami Hamabe, I almost got that. And there's so much truth in their performances as well. And that last uh, 10 minutes is one of the most emotional endings of a movie I've seen in years. And it's so well done. It's mm -hmm. so truthfully acted. It's so brilliantly introducing yeah the the thing that happens you do see it and my son said i was a little bit disappointed i could i could see that i picked up on that and i said yeah but that's that's fine okay it's the filmmaker is giving that to you as a clue so it, it kind of feels satisfying later so it is telegraphed but yeah it's not a, were, like, it's not like it's a twist it's a it's a reveal no it's a, yeah exactly exactly yeah. and the fact that at the end of this movie there was a girl behind me openly like uncontrollably sobbing in a godzilla movie and you're so used to <laughs> american movies where the giant monster movies like pacific rim or, or any other big monster movies are generally cgi heavy um ragtag groups who get together and then uh kill the monster and it's a big cgi battle and you feel nothing by the end of it but oh yeah that was cool this is one of like a deeply emotional drama that happens to have Godzilla in it. And it does it brilliantly. Like it combines those disparate parts brilliantly. And I'm just blown away by it. And the really interesting thing as well is that um, I, in the same week, I watched um, Shin Godzilla from 2016. And um, I've, I've learned from from discussions with you and from research that Toho is basically like yeah we want to we're going to try some different things and see what works with this franchise so Shin Godzilla is a completely different movie and uh, but it's fantastic but it's a uh, modern set it's it looks like it's filmed on handy cams uh, it's a bunch of like nerdy scientists for, versus Godzilla completely different movie and yet recognizably Godzilla and and this film, completely different era and style of movie, yet recognizably Godzilla. Both incredible films, but this is just mind blowing. This film just blew me away. So yeah, I mean, that's sort of it. the sort of the great strength of Godzilla is that the best Godzilla films are not really about Godzilla, right? Like mm. this one is about very specifically and overtly about wartime PTSD. Um, the original is very nakedly about how do we deal with the fact that we were basically treated to an apocalyptic event with the dropping of the like Godzilla's a stand-in for the bomb in the first mm. one you know the for better or for worse the 2014 American Godzilla which I think is one of the better ones is uh just about how you deal with these world-ending events happening around you like it's not about Godzilla it's about the family unit and it's debatably successful but again it's it's the theme that it is not about godzilla holds true and this is again i'm just gonna again say that like this is one of the most successful ones since the original um 
I said a, a bunch of times before that the best Godzilla films are like basically drenched in metaphor, or they have giant monsters beating the ever living fuck out of one another. And this is a, maybe the best example of the first kind. Um, I, yeah. I think it's amazing to me how successful it is with its effects as well. Cause again, like it's only $15 million and there's lots of things you could point out. Like the fact that Godzilla's eyes don't really move. And like in the new American ones, you can see like every scale on his body. And there's like a level of detail there that is legitimately incredible. Um, and this doesn't necessarily have that, but also it doesn't really matter. Like it's, it's the, it's the, it's the most, it's a little more, basic like he moves a lot slower he moves interestingly like it's obviously cg but he also moves like a dude yes. in a suit which i exactly. very much appreciate yeah. um and it like godzilla's head looks like a giant mask even though it's cg and mm-hmm. i i kind of loved that about it um because ultimately again this movie's not about godzilla so godzilla himself doesn't really matter um so like when they when I tell you that they recreated the nineteen uh, the Shin, local fighter Shinden, which is a a real plane that was really made and never made it past prototype, to see that thing fly is pretty incredible. Oh, it's like it looks so it looks amazing, and even though like I say the ending, there's bits of the ending where you're going to see them coming a mile away. It's not a twist, like it is just a reveal, and it's maybe a little ham-handed but like you're talking about someone else in your theater crying i was crying in my theater simon like i was crying (laughs) this is a a deeply emotional film that talks a lot about things i think most of us can relate to um and it's i'm really glad that it's making just all the money off its budget i think it's already well i mean it's at like it's only made like 45 million dollars or something like that so far but when you consider that's three times its budget and it's only gaining momentum like it only just opened here Mm. um i just honestly like if you're listening to this look up when this movie is playing and go watch it it is great it is legitimately great um and whether you're looking for kaiju action or for a deep emotional drama you're going to get both Mm. yeah and i yeah I'm having a hard time talking about it because there's things I want to say that I would consider spoilers. But when you when you consider the performances of um, Ranosuke Kamiki and Minami Hamabe, um, who are sort of like the core family that forms, but also the interplay between um, uh, Kamiki and Munitaka Aoki, who plays the the lone surviving mechanic who knows what. Koichi did at the beginning of the film. He's not even in the film that much. Um, but his film, his scenes are so good. He's he's so good at the beginning and he's so good at the end for entirely different reasons, performance reasons that I don't want to spoil. <laughs> um, yeah, that, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, Sakura Ando as well, who plays a woman called Sumiko, is another Tokyo survivor who's like almost a neighbor to to um Kimiki's character, she has one of my favorite moments in the whole movie. Just from their their interplay and their relationship is so interestingly established as it goes through the time as it passes. And there's there's one little moment where she sort of physically pushes him. I don't want to say more than that, but it is uh it's just really real. It's just really mm-hmm. astute 
and and it's just lovely and it's it introduces a thing a, a piece of information that it just fits together beautifully it's just so well done yep I, and we haven't even talked about like the other guys on his mine clearing boat crew who are uniformly great um although i would say i would really like to single out um hidetaka yoshioka who plays this older character who's like oh i worked in the war effort i was in strategic planning or whatever and then it turns out he's actually he's on this mining boat but he was actually like very high up in in the war effort Mm -hmm. in terms of like strategy and planning and this is also a film that like there's going to be some asshole dubro in your life that says that like Godzilla movies are not political, but this is a movie that literally has oh a character all but turn to this camera and say the Japanese government is inefficient yes. and does not care about you. And therefore we must solve this problem by ourselves. Like yes. it's like this Shin movie Godzilla does the same thing. Yeah. yeah. This movie like is very overtly political in a way that I find, I guess here's the thing. If this was an American film, I think we would call it ham handed right like mm-hmm. it is not shy it doesn't shy away from anything it doesn't shy away from overtly mm-hmm. telling you what it's trying to tell you and it's mm-hmm. interesting to me that that is works so well in not just in this franchise but in japanese film very specifically mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. of the japanese films that i've seen that i've loved have a scene where a character basically turns to the camera and says and this is what we're trying to teach you with this artistic experience <laughs> and if you did that in american film you'd be like oh god like what but Mm -hmm. it just works it works so well in this film um and i i kind of can't wait to see how some people i'm aware of react to it when they see it um but it's wonderful i can't wait for this movie to be available at home so i can watch it a bazillion times uh i wish i wish that i had time to go and see it in a cinema again to answer your question in our bonus round this week, that is the steelbook I would buy in a heartbeat if they release like a fancy version of this film in 4K. So I would actually, will. I would, I know I'm worried about that because I, I agree, but they've only ever released a fairly standard edition of Shin Godzilla Blu-ray. It's never had a steelbook or a collector's edition. There's only been one and it took a year for it to come out here. Right. So I don't. But this is this has been doing so well. I've been seeing this in non-movie press that my par- even my parents are talking about it. Like this is getting some serious coverage because it is doing so so well. So I hope. I mean, I I hope I hope that it. they do. I hope that they do. I'm just choosing to not hold my breath this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but tell if anyone from Toho is listening, like give me that <laughs> give me that super expensive collector's edition, man. Like it'll it'll be on my shelf for sure. <laughs> Yes. Right beside, and if you're listening, just for the record, like license the Hisei and Millennium Eras to Criterion, so I can get uh second and third like those editions right beside my Showa era box set as well. Just as a side note, mm. you know, um, and matching same style. Would love to have those like book sets side by side by side on my shelf. If mm. you're listening, Criterion and Toho, <laughs> um, I'm sure they are. Get because... right on that. Because my Showa era box set is incredible. It's like more of yeah, a it's, it's gorgeous. It, it's a book, right? Um, yeah. But it's incredible, and I want more like that. So, mm-hmm. do do the thing, please do the thing. Um, please, please so, how many how many stars are you giving Godzilla subtraction Uno, sir? Five plus five <laughs> minus one plus plus six equals five stars. <laughs> 
like so, moving, uh, visually stunning, exciting, uh, everything I want modern filmmaking to be. And I would love the big franchise owners in America to look at what's been done here and to learn some damn lessons. How many stars for you? You know, when I first came out of this film, I gave it four. And I think the more I've thought about it, the more I think I was wrong and it's worth five. Um, I can't wait to see this film again. Mm-hmm. And I would say this is also and <laughs> one thing that I really appreciate about this film. And this is also true of Shin Godzilla compared to the American ones, but they really get the roar right in a way that the American <laughs> ones, the American ones don't even don't necessarily get it wrong. But there's something about the quality of the Godzilla's roar in Japanese film versus American ones that is, I think they're trying to make him like emote or speak more or say more with his roar. And this one really Mm -hmm. gets the base level, like guttural, visceral, like you should be afraidness of the roar better. Uh, Yeah. That's a total side note, but uh, Godzilla's roar is important to me. So I'm, I'm making it. Um, side, another side note, if you're interested in watching this and have Apple TV, then please do watch the Monarch TV show because it does have, including this film, the single best shot of Godzilla ever, in my opinion, which is when someone's trying to evacuate kids off a school bus and in the deep background, Godzilla's face comes around and roars into the foreground is one of the is probably my favorite Godzilla shot ever. And it's a great show. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you that show is running through the beginning of January, but I can tell you, I've now seen all of it and it is great. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think I'm technically breaking an embargo by saying that, but it's great. And well, you should watch, you should watch it. Us. Yes, you should. Um, so yeah, five stars. Go see it. Please yeah. go see it in the cinema. Please, please go see it on the biggest, darkest, screen the biggest screen the darkest room the biggest sound system i saw it in regular because i had to go with my son so the only time i could see it was in like regular screening instead of avx and i'm seriously thinking of catching it in avx or is it an imax anywhere and i i don't actually I'm, know if it's an imax but i that. definitely saw it in an avx screen um mm. and yeah like just find the biggest screen you can see it on and watch it there because yeah. yeah. it is legitimately great and uh, again, I when it's when it's available at home, I look forward to watching it roughly a million times in the Absolutely. same way that I have seen original Godzilla a million times in my life. <laughs> yes, there's a there's a podcast in here somewhere where we just watch Godzilla films, but there's a podcast <laughs> oh, there in a lot okay. of in a lot of places. So that would be perfect because I haven't seen any of it apart from the original now. So I would love to work through one by one and see see them decide to become more like uh king of the monsters protector of the earth era godzilla which i i didn't realize he was treated as an unstoppable force of nature i thought he was just a nice friend to the people so that was plus again that's the other thing that's the other thing that makes a a great godzilla film and i think that the american ones like the legendary monster verse is moderately successful at this but the best the best versions of a Godzilla film have Godzilla as some, he's just an unstoppable force. He's not, he's not necessarily malevolent and he's not necessarily a friend. He's just a thing that exists yeah. that everyone has to deal with. Like and, and he's a, he's a stand in for again, like in the best ones, which would be 54 and minus one, he's a stand in for 
this national PTSD that Japan has suffered. Mm-hmm. And again, I think 2014 does a pretty good job of him being that. Um, and I think that the later ones where they've made him like, and the American ones, the later ones where they've made him like an alpha monster and he's not, he's not fighting to protect people. He's just fighting to maintain his alpha status, I think is an interesting, mm-hmm. but overthought twist on that, even though mm-hmm. I like most of those movies. Mm-hmm. Even if uh, Godzilla vs. Kong is not great. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a great film, and you should definitely see it. So I'm going to go ahead and say that's two films we've watched this week. One that we loved and one that we liked, mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should definitely see both that's of them fine. for different reasons. And uh, we're going to end it there, because we are over time. Um, yes. So thank you so much for listening. Um, if you'd like to support us, we do have a... Uh, you know, check out the homepage. You'll find streaming links for both of these movies. And if you use those streaming links, they update as availability changes. And if you use them uh, to find a place to stream, rent, or buy them digitally, uh, it helps us keep the lights on. Uh, you can also um, support us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on basically all of them. But if you can give us a good review or subscribe, those things help immeasurably. And last but not least, we do have a Patreon. Uh, and if you are a supporter on there for as little as two bucks a month, Canadian, uh, you do get a bonus episode every week. This week we talked about mm-hmm. um, sort of white whale home video purchases and um, our, you know, our Star Star Wars pitches, which was a very interesting conversation that I'm glad Simon brought up. Mm-hmm. Um Last, but certainly not least, we uh, record this here in Vancouver, BC, Canada. We are on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. And one last time, thank you so much for listening and for joining us on this awesome Friday. Bye.